You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Terry Kaler is known as the wedge guy for good reason. In fact, Pope Francis, who plays four rounds a week on the Vatican's private golf course, recently named Terry as the patron saint of wedge play. Unfortunately, uh, the installation ceremony in Rome has been delayed because of the pandemic. But if you dig a little deeper into Terry's background or you're a reader of his hundreds of blog posts, you know that his depth of knowledge regarding the game of golf and about the golf equipment industry goes far beyond wedges. More significantly, if you followed Terry's long career, which began as, as a caddy carrying for Francis we met in the 1913 U.S. Open, or maybe I'm confusing Terry with someone else. If you follow Terry, you know that when it comes to golf, he's always opinionated and often thought-provoking. For example, Terry believes that the golf courses that you play on are often more difficult than the courses that the PGA Tour professionals play on. He believes that the focus on green speed has made the game too hard for the average golfer to score. Terry believes you should carry a forward in your bag. And he believes that if you slow down your transition from your downswing, your ball striking and distance will improve. And Terry plays to a three handicap, so he does have some credibility on swing mechanics. Over the course of his history in the golf business, he'll talk about as soon as I stop rambling, the connective tissue that I see in his career path is Terry's passion for craftsmanship, precision, and performance when it comes to golf equipment. So it's not surprising that Terry came out of retirement in 2018 to create a company with a value proposition based on those three attributes. And also not surprisingly, it's a company called Edison Golf that makes, drum roll here, wedges. So Terry Kaler, the wedge guy, welcome to Golf Yeah. Well, thank you, Gordon. That was quite flattering. I um, I really enjoyed listening to that uh, little piece of creativity there. <laughs> okay. Listen, and my first question is, how many people mispronounced your name? They pronounce it Kohler. And do you, do you care anymore? Well, I do care because it's heritage, and I would say the vast majority see it and pronounce it Kohler. It doesn't offend me, but I am also uh, reasonably quick to correct them and say it is Kaler, which is the traditional German pronunciation. And, and no relation to the Kohler toilet company, although it's spelled differently, right? <laughs> no, too bad I didn't inherit that fortune. And so uh, also the Kohler Furniture Company, which had an R in there. Those of your listeners in Texas would remember Pearl Beer, and that was also, excuse me, a Kaler family by the same spelling, but no relation. So let's start with your backstory. You know, where you grew up, how your love of the game started. Well, I honestly do not remember life before golf garden, and I grew up on a in a little town of 7,000 people on a little nine-hole municipal golf course, and had the tutelage of my father, who was a very accomplished player and a student of the game, and a golf professional named Carl Gustafson, who was an extraordinary player and back in the 50s made his way to Cuero, this little town I grew up in. So we had great tutelage. A whole group of us juniors grew up in, in that era, a lot of good players still today in our 60s and 70s that were under the tutelage of Carl. 
and uh, the kids all called him pro and the adults called him Swede. So, but you know, I grew up and, and playing that little nine hole golf course. That was where we spent our summer days and other afternoons. And uh, so it's just really blessed to grow up in an environment like that. And my father was a patient teacher and was also, I developed my love of learning how things work in that environment. My dad uh, and I, we built custom rifles, refinished gun stocks. We rebuilt our fishing reels. We, you know, worked on all kinds of things that reloaded ammunition, things that were technical in nature and caught the attention of the second son who was seemed to be at my dad's elbow all the time. How many, how many siblings did you have? I just had one older brother who passed away. He lost a cancer battle five years ago. So oh, we were both into golf and hunting and fishing. That was the lifestyle we grew up in, in that little small town in South Texas. And then you went, you went off to college. So I went off to college, got a degree from Texas A&M and tried my hand at, at banking and the automobile business and uh, went out on my own at 27 years old and formed my own marketing agency. And uh, one of the first clients I ever got was Ray Cook Putter Company, which was in San Antonio at the time when I was there. I was just fascinated, not by only by the marketing, which is my background, but by what goes on in the back of the shop. Going back to that, sitting at my father's elbow, you know, watching guns. We worked on fishing reels. And and from there, I was able to meet and interact with Odie Chrisman, Putter Craftsman, Joe Powell Golf, uh, Newman Leather, I was really able to to interact with people that really knew a lot about golf club performance and being the inquisitive guy that I am, you know, I spent a lot of time in the back end going, well, why did you do that to that golf club? And why does that golf club do this? And I really credit Joe Powell with being a tremendous mentor for me about golf club design and performance. So from there, I just uh, launched into some putter design in the eighties and that took me into wedge design and, that took me to the Ben Hogan Company in the early 90s. And uh, from there, I went out and created my first golf club company, Reed Lockhart, with uh, some wedge technology and irons technology I developed. And I've just been an entrepreneur in the industry ever since. How do you design clubs? I mean, I would imagine that the, the craft itself has changed a lot. Has it gone from actually clay models to computer imaging? I mean, what, what, what are the mechanics of but when I started, I worked in, uh, I had a craftsman teach me how to make models out of mahogany. Mahogany is a great wood. I would I would actually take a chunk of mahogany and carve on it till it looked like a golf club. And I'd whittle away things. I'd pack it back up with epoxy putty and work on a wood model. Uh, that's how I started before anybody was doing CAD. And I kind of still like the hands-on modeling approach because I'm a very visual person. And I think a golf club has to meet multiple criteria, you know, you design from a standpoint, I design from a standpoint of what performance am I trying to achieve? But then I put a tremendous emphasis on beside working well, it has to look good to the golfer. I have a a graphics, visual arts background, and I'm very focused always on what do the lines look like? What do the curves look like? What does the visual beauty of this product look like? And I've always been drawn to classic design, whether it's firearms, whether it's, you know, art, whether it's sculpture, whether it's a golf club, I'm always drawn to to flowing, smooth, clean designs. I like simplicity and whether it's an automobile or anything, I like beauty and and simplicity. But now we've moved into CAD, as you mentioned, and now you translate your ideas to your CAD designer and your CAD technician and he does his magic in the CAD file, and then you can print 3D models. You can look at that plastic model, see if the lines are where you want them, and 
with this last iteration of wedges, we even moved into 3D sampling. So we were building our prototypes and 3D printing out of metal, which so we could test that file to see if it did what we wanted before we went to the expense of creating a forging tooling. It's very fascinating. Doesn't But doesn't it come down ultimately to what the ball does with the club and, and you know, using Iron Byron to test out the performance of a, of a club that you've designed? I agree with that completely. And I mean, to me, every design starts with what do I want to achieve in the way of ball performance? And with me and wedges, you know, what I'm constantly seeking and have been since I began surveying golfers is a more penetrating, consistent ball flight much more consistent distance, a more a more forgiving golf club as impact moves a little high on the face, a little low on the face, a little toward the toe or the heel. Wedges are distance control clubs. And so what I'm looking for is the most consistent distance possible, even when you make those misses. And wedges, and you mentioned robotic testing, I've put you know dozens of wedges on robotic testing for 20 years. And wedges just proved to me over and over they're the most volatile clubs in our bag in impact efficiency. I mean, the smash factor, which you don't hear people talk about in wedges, it varies a lot. Every one of your listeners, hopefully we have lots of them, you know that shot, the ball's sitting a little high in the rough and you catch it high on the face. And you know before you even look up, it's going to come up short, it's going to pop up, it's not going to have spin, it's going to come up short. Well, that's built into that golf club. You know, you look at your wedges, they're Unlike drivers and hybrids that have a lot of pixie dust going on inside, as I call it, a wedge is pretty much a single piece of molded metal, and as is a blade iron. And you can look at that club, and if you're experienced in the art as I am, you can pretty much tell what this golf club is going to do if you move impact from low to high to toe to heel. And modern wedges that have been made the same way for 50 years, they just don't have any mass in the top two-thirds of the golf club. So conversely, when you hit a shot up and high in the face, there's no mass behind it. So you have a significant reduction of impact efficiency. So I, you know, my singular goal with wedge design for 25 years has been to equalize that. So to make that ball perform close to the same way, whether you hit it right and perfect or a little low, a little on the toe, high in the face, I'm trying to give you that same distance, whether you hit a gap wedge 90 or 120, you want it to go that far every time. That's what wedges have not delivered to us. We've been just finished testing the two hottest new wedges on the market, and they're not close to what we're doing because they're not putting enough mass where we are. I know that one of your positions is that wedges compared with drivers and putters have really been ignored in terms of making advances or significant changes. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm speculating here, but my guess is it's a two-part. There's two answers to that. One is economics. And if you're in business, you have to put your attention where the opportunity is. And if you take the market leader, we all know who that is. I don't have to say their name. You know, they sell maybe a half million wedges a year. And that represents 50 or 60 million dollars to that company, which is would be miraculous for a company like I'm starting. But that's two, two and a half percent of that big company's total revenue picture. So. When you're running a business, if you're running a restaurant, you don't put all your attention on the dish that you sell very little of. You put your attention on your maiden sellers, right? Whether, you know, it's the car business or any business, you give your attention where the primary economic benefit is. And wedges are just not that big of a category. Now, I think that's also because we haven't seen anywhere near the technical revolution in wedges that we've seen multiple times in drivers, multiple times in irons putters, 
But the other side of that, I think, is the big brands who we generally turn to to see what's new history. And I'll come back to that because the big brands typically don't innovate. I think our history proves that. But the big brands make a big deal out of proving their golf clubs, particularly their wedges with their tour professional. And I think that an influence there is if you're and I like to use Justin Thomas. I think he seems like a nice kid. He's great talent. But there's a kid that knew since he was 11 years old, he wanted to be a tour professional. He's been working on a short game for, you know, three fourths of his life with wedges that really haven't changed much. So if you immediately put a wedge in Justin's hands that launches different flies, different spins, different feels different, theoretically, you could negate a lifetime of short game practice because all of a sudden the ball's not doing what he thought it was going to do. And so I think the tour players is not demanding massive improvement in wedge performance. Not going to be wrong with that, but that, to me that sounds logical because the best players on tour hit 12 or 13 greens around and they're shooting 65s doing that. So they obviously have magical short games besides being great putters. I think that's an influence, the economics and the, and the tour influence. And there is no place in golf, in my opinion and my observation, that the best amateurs differ from the rank and file tour player is in wedge skills. I mean, the tour players are magical. They're mystical on the, the things they've learned to do with wedges. And the amateur is just trying to figure out how to get up and down 50% of the time. And, and if you do that, you're, you're really, really good as an amateur. Yeah. So their skills are so different there. I mean, I don't think their ball striking skills are that different from good amateurs. I've watched a lot of good amateurs that can hit 14, 15, 16 greens around shoot 71. You know, a tour player hits 16 greens around. He shoot, he's tearing it up. He's shooting 63 today, 64 today. I think the short game is the big separator. And if you don't have a really good short game, you cannot play golf for a living. I mean, it's just the facts. You have to have a magical short game to be the worst guy on tour. Yeah. My limited experience, and I am not a good golfer, but it, but I love the game and, and, I, and I play uh, as often as I can. I, I see people pull out wedges around the green when – uh, an eight iron or a nine iron might have been the better club. Well, they'll they'll fluff it, or or you know what I mean. They'll they'll come up short because they feel obligated to pull a wedge out of their bag if they're near the green. Do do you think that that's something that's, that happens a lot in golf? That people just automatically go to wedge when they're near the green when when a short when an iron might be better. Well, I think that what I've seen and from all the people I get to talk to writing my blog, Gordon, is that I think that goes both ways. There are people who are totally afraid of their wedges. And they're trying to get by with the bump and run eight or nine iron when it's when it's really a wedge shot. They need to have some carry. They need to have some spin. But like you say, there are other people that, excuse me, will automatically go to a wedge when really it's a it's a pitch and wedge or nine iron, eight iron bump and run. It's a reliable surface. I tend to believe most of the time you want to carry the ball onto the green and let it run out. I write frequently and as the wedge guy, I write about, you know, use your creativity around the greens. And if you have one chipping technique, you can change ball performance by chipping that technique with the seven iron, eight iron, nine iron, pitch and wedge, gap wedge, lob wedge, and you'll get different shot results without changing your technique. And to me, for we rank and file recreational players that play once or twice a week and don't get to grind on our short games, to me, it's a lot easier to manage the flight and rollout of the golf ball by changing the golf club rather than trying to change your, your technique. Because right. we don't have time to practice, you know, all these different shots with the sand wedge. 
if you say, you know what, I've got a, a little chipping technique that works really good for me. And if I chip with a pitching wedge, it does this. If I chip with a gap wedge, it does that. A sand wedge, it does that. A lob wedge, it does that. And you will find all of your listeners, and whether you're 20 handicap or two, you will find during the course of a round of golf, the demands that you get really creative to try a flop shot or something kind of out of your norm are really pretty minimal. And those are the holes usually where a missed green turns into a double or worse because you're hitting a shot that you don't practice a lot and it's outside your standard chipping technique. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I'm a huge Ben Hogan fan. He was my idol as a kid. And he always said, you never hit a shot on the golf course that you haven't practiced. And people will go to the range and warm up and loosen up and go to the first tee, it's like, did you hit any little flop shots out on the range? Did you hit any little chip shots? Did you hit anything that's going to be, that you're going to call on maybe as early as the first hole? You know, first green you miss, you're going to be called on to hit a chip or a pitch. Did you hit any of those in your warm-up session? Or how long has it been since you hit a chip or a pitch, and was it any good or not? To me, the the shorter the shot from three-foot putts to little chip shots, the shorter the shot, the more your nervous energy gets in the way of your performance. Very few people have driver yips. A lot of people have putting and chipping yips. Chipping the ball is a lot easier than driving the ball. You know, you're only taking the club back three feet instead of all the way behind your head. Theoretically, it should be a lot easier, but we don't practice that. Sorry, I kind of rambled there a little bit. No, that's all right. You know, one of of your blog posts uh, were the five indisputable rules of bunker play. Can you run through those really quickly? I got to remember that article. I've written so many, you know, I can't recall every article I wrote. I have to go reference my, my slide. But, you know, I think in bunker play, your first objective is to get it out and somewhere puttable. You know, make sure a bogey is worse that's going to happen. And, but I think that in any short shots, bunkers in particular, you have to be slower and more precise. You have to widen your stance in the bunker so you lower your swing plane so you can get under the ball. You know, I think that those are, are some of the, the real basics. But I think bunker play is is hard for most recreational golfers because they don't practice it. And bunkers are, you know, the tour guys get the luxury of playing essentially the same bunker sand every week. Yeah. You know, they also hit probably a thousand bunker shots a week to stay in touch. And, you know, listen to most of your readers ask your, or your listeners, ask yourself, when was the last time you went into the bunker for a session of hitting 20 or 30 shots? Every week, do you do it before every round? Probably not. And so bunkers are intimidating for most recreational players because it's we view it as a hazard, a place to avoid. The tour player, he looks at it as a place where I know the kind of line I'm going to get and I know what the ball's going to do out of it, you know, versus that rough or whatever. You see very few fluffed bunker shots on the tour. Very few. I always appreciate it when I do see one. Makes me <laughs> yeah, makes, it makes me realize those guys are really human too, right? Here's a here's a simplistic question. You know, the average golfer, I, I think, has doesn't have the the technical knowledge um, certainly that you have with respect to bounce and all the smash factors and all that stuff. And and in truth, many of them don't care, and they'll take whatever wedges come with the set that they buy, and most often. It's a it's a pitching wedge and a and a sand wedge, and they might be even unsure what the lofts are. So, what is there a go to set of wedges that you think should be standard in the average golfer's bag? Um, the answer is there's a brand that should be in every bag. That's Edison. But, but, we'll talk about, I'm going to talk about your company. You know, I think it, here's one of the things, Gordon. I think it's really fascinating if you stop and think about. So, if you 
say the typical driver is 10 degrees and the typical lob wedge is 60. You think about that. That's a 50 degree range of golf clubs, right? Now, halfway between that 50 degrees would be a 35 degree golf club, 25 degrees more loft than a driver, 25 degrees less loft than a lob wedge. If you think of a typical set of golf clubs, if you look at the 25 degrees between the driver and 35 degree golf club, the 35 degree club now has an eight on the bottom. Then maybe around 28 degrees, you go to a hollow iron. And then about 25 degrees, you go to a hybrid. And then around 17 degrees, you go to a fairway wood. And then at 10 degrees, you go to a driver. So you have five completely different golf club designs to optimize ball flight at 10 degrees, 14, 17 degrees, 19 to 21 degrees, 25 to 28 degrees, and 35 degrees. So you have five completely different golf club designs. But in the average golfer's bag from 35 to 60, he's got two designs. He's got an iron design and a wedge design. And his wedges look alike regardless of the loft, and his irons look alike regardless of the loft. So if you think about if it took the golf club, and there's some brilliant people in our industry, if it took the golf club engineers five designs to optimize ball flight at 35 degrees, 28 degrees, 23 degrees, 17 degrees, and 10 degrees, takes them five designs to optimize ball flight, how can they do optimize ball flight with only two designs in the other 25 degrees? I mean, that defies logic, doesn't it? Because we know a 35-degree club and a 27-degree club perform entirely different. But if you buy matching wedges to your irons, your 35-degree club, your 40, your 45, and your 50 all look exactly alike. That's 20 degrees of the same head design. And then you flip over to a, quote, wedge design, and they look alike at 52, 56, and 60. So if you think about that, it doesn't make sense. So I don't think... And in my observation, in modern irons, which most of your your listeners are playing some kind of a game improvement club, that was designed to optimize ball flight at about a six iron, somewhere around 30 degrees aloft. And then history is the tradition is you apply that design to all the clubs. There's a few exceptions there. But a 45 degree club with a P on the bottom is a very different golf club than a 28 degree club with a six on the bottom or 25 now. So I'm a big believer you have to look at the club head design as what do I want that golf club to do? This is a 40 degree golf club. I want it to give me a reasonable measure of forgiveness. I want it to give me a penetrating ball flight with lots of spin and good control. And I want something different out of my 25 degree club. I want a high ball flight, not too concerned about spin. I want to be real forgiving because I miss hit that club more often. When you go into wedges, you are aggravating ball striking consistency because now you have that club face slanted back at 52, 55, 60 degrees. It's going to be a glancing blow. That's just the nature of the beast. You've got all this loft on it. So I think you have to really approach that differently. And I've got wedges in my collection from the 1940s and 50s that with very little alteration, I could peel the chrome off of it, peel the graphics off, and maybe shape the face a little bit and put it right in the market as a modern wedge. Because, I mean, history will prove me right that wedges have not changed much in, you know, decades. And I'm out here to change that. I think it's time for them to change. We play the game very differently than than it was played in the 50s and 80s. So so what should the average golfer carry? In, what, what set of wedges should they carry? I think the golfer needs to to really give some attention to that. And you need to look at how far do you hit your highest lofted iron that you like. 
Is it eight iron and nine iron? Do you really like your set matching? I call it the peak love now that they're down 43 to 45 degrees aloft. And then you should choose wedges to give yourself incremental, equal incremental gapping down to whatever your last full swing wedge is, whether that's a 56 or a 58 or even a 60. And what you're trying to achieve is consistent distance differential. So I know that for example, in mine, my bag, my 57 is a 82 to 84 yard club. My 54 is 95, you know, my 50. I mean, I know what the yardages are. I want 10 to 12 yards between clubs at the short end of my set because that's where I'm going to score. And I'm fine with 15, 18 yards at the long end of the set. I'm not trying to knock a flag down at 200. I'm just trying to get on the green two putt, get a bar, get out of there. So I think that you should manage your bag with a launch monitor. There's so many good ones out there now so that you can say, you know, how far do I really hit my golf ball and with each club? And you just want to have incrementally smaller gapping as you get down into the short end. I think that bounce, I've always, you know, is a, is a big topic in wedges. You know, I always call it all anybody talks about is grooves and grinds, but there's so much more to wedge in the head design. You should find a wedge that, gives you the ball flight you're looking for, the spin you're looking for, the consistency you're looking for. And, and maybe the biggest thing about wedges, Gordon, I don't I hope I'm not dodging the question, but there's no pat answer. Everybody shouldn't carry the same wedges no more than everybody should pay, play the same fab. You need to find the loft sequence that gives you your your actual carry distance gapping that will serve you. And I see so many people that, you know, they're high tech iron, you know, they now hit their pitch and wedge you know, 130, but they're still carrying a 52, 56, 60, and their 52 goes 90. Well, they got a 30 or 40 yard gap in there that used to be 15 when they had a 58 degree or a 48 degree pitching wedge that was a blade iron. I think you have to constantly reassess. And if you buy a new set of irons, you got to go reassess your gapping between your new pitching wedge and your gap wedge. And you'll probably find your gap wedge now is a little on the weak side compared to that new iron. And we sell a lot of 49-degree gap wedges because that's a good blend with with the 45-degree pitching wedges that are out there. And it just goes too short for people now. So I I guess your answer is if you're serious about getting the most out of your wedges, you have to do your homework. You have to do your homework. This is the hardest part of the game. Wedge selection and wedge play is the hardest part of the game, and yet wedges are the most most off-the-rack purchased golf club that we have. People are getting yeah. custom for drivers and irons, and I would tell you that the, the biggest beef I have about wedges off the rack is they all have a heavy, stiff steel shaft in them, and most golfers are now playing some form of lightweight steel or graphite, softer flexes, R-flexes, even A-flexes for seniors, and that wedge in the rack is a terrible disconnect. So the first thing you should do is get your wedges, get a shaft in them that's pretty consistent with the shaft in your iron so that you're what I call a seamless transition. So your weight and your feel of those wedges is just incremental to what's going on in your irons. They buy 90% of their wedges off the rack and 50% of their irons are bought custom. Doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about your company. Your promotional material in your website says you came out of retirement. How long were you in retirement? before you decided to get back into the game? Well, I took a powder after, you know, I worked my tail off getting the Hogan company back into business. It didn't work out like I wanted. I won't go into details. But when I retired from Hogan, 
I really poured myself into reconnecting with fishing. I'd been driving 300 miles back and forth from my home to Fort Worth every Monday and Friday. Pretty exhausting. And then doing 70 hours a week in between all that. And I reconnected with my fishing and I, it was the fall. I reconnected with bird hunting and my bird dogs. I reconnected with a remodeling project on a little house at the coast I had bought. And then I, I started, I was asked by golfwrx.com to start writing the wedge guy again. And I had not done that in three or four years and always loved it. So I started writing again. And as soon as I started writing, you know, I had more and more people reaching out going, when are you going to do wedges? When are you, not if, <laughs> or not are you going to do wedges, but when are you going to do wedges? And I just got to thinking about, we had such a great run with score and built such a fan base of that radical departure from wedge design. I said, well, I'm not through yet. Wedges are still, golfers need more help there than anything else in their bag. So I um, started tinkering again and I did some exploration, as I mentioned, into 3D manufacturing and found a resource. And we were actually, we filed a patent on some 3D technologies, but it's cost-wise not really practical yet. But it let us really do some interesting testing of golf club concepts. And so when we determined the 3D manufacturing wasn't quite there yet from a cost standpoint, I said, well, how can I replicate this performance with a single piece forging? So that's where the Edison design began to evolve in mid-2017 and then into 2018. I realized that I talked to a couple of big golf companies about, you know, here's what I have and didn't get a lot of interest. We don't give any attention to wedges. We don't talk to outside designers. It's okay, fine. So I said, well, I'll just do this on my own then and make it a cottage business. And and then a very good friend of mine from the industry who is the yin to my yang. He's a T-crosser and I daughter, loves operations and finance, which I'm not nuts about. And uh, he said, let's do this together. And I said, the only way I'd start a new company is with a partner that'll do all the things I don't like to do. So we have a great deal. I get to live on the coast and, and deal with these kind of interviews and tell my stories and talk to people about wedges and continue to think about new designs and how can I continue to improve. And I think about irons and drivers and all those kind of things too. I have the prototypes in my bag of things that people would maybe be amazed at, but, and so we launched the company. We were ready to launch in the fall of eight of 19. And then we started an advanced launch within the COVID thing hit and production got delayed. And, you know, you don't know what kind of world we're inheriting and, but in April, we said, you know, we've got our inventories here. Let's start and let's see what happens. And we've gotten a great reception. People are buying the wedges. are absolutely loving them. So, Why is it called Edison? You know, naming companies. I've started several companies and naming companies is always one of the exercises you go through. My partner I recruited is, a, is an engineer and Thomas Edison is like a personal hero of his. And he said, you know, you're a lot like him because he was a relentless designer. He was relentless when he was on a mission. And he said, you've been doing that your whole life, just relentlessly going up against the big brands with different ideas. And what I what I know from a testing standpoint are better ideas. I thought Edison was a cool name for the company, and we agreed that. So that's what we did. You didn't have any trouble getting the rights to that name, the Edison family? No, really, there was uh, you know, a domain out there. We negotiated to get the domain, and we filed the trademark, and uh, were, was awarded the trademark for Edison. And, you know, it's just the process you go through. But, no, we didn't have any difficulties really at all. Yeah. Now, is it self-funded, or did you have, do you have investors? I put my, a lot of my own resources into it. We took on one one small investor 
this year to get off the ground and launched and, and to be able to do some things. And uh, we wanted to get this year under our belt, kind of get some ideas of what we have here. You know, we may be doing a capital raise uh, this fall or next spring. To We see an opportunity to really accelerate into next year. But, you know, we don't have any delusions, Gordon, of slaying giants or anything. We know what we do every day. We make the best wedges on the market. We custom build everything. There's nothing off the rack. There's not a finished golf club in our shop, uh, with the exception of two or three clubs that may be returned. Uh, we don't get any returns. We have a custom demo program that we like our golf club to just do the talking. I mean, we have a great story, but that's a story. You need to put the club in your hands and then you'll appreciate what we're doing is real. It's uh, very genuine in the performance that we're delivering. You think your club is that radically different than wedges you'll find in a in a Dick Sporting Goods or even in a Greengrass? No, I don't think so at all, Gordon. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because I've tested them all. I know they're better. I know that we launch two to four degrees lower. I know that we spend 10 to 15% more. I know that our our mishit forgiveness factor is 70% better than their mishit forgiveness factor. Our spin deviation, our distance deviation is by leaps and bounds better than anything out there. And I have a very simple, basically a very simple message, and that is, you know that shot you hit with your wedge, you've been playing these wedges forever, that shot you hit that's high on the face, and you feel it, right? Because it feels kind of hollow. If you ever look up, you know it's going to be short, right? You know that shot. Every listener knows that shot. My simple question is, why has that been acceptable for 50 years? It's not acceptable on our drivers. We don't accept that a half-inch miss is going to cost us 20% of our distance. We don't accept that in an iron. That's why cavity back irons are. We don't even accept it in putters. That's why the big spaceship mallets, you know, the big story this week is Justin Thomas's new Scotty Cameron, and it's all about getting more forgiveness. And nobody talks about forgiveness in wedges historically. But I don't want to give up in my wedges my skill shots. If I've mastered kind of that little knockdown or that little bump-and-run chip, that little you know, flop shot. I don't want to give up the high quality performance, but I want more forgiveness. And we've put wedges on Iron Byron for 20 years. And I'll just be honest, I've seen no performance differences from the major brands until this year. They is the first time I've seen them make any material difference in performance and they're still not where we are. So that's brash, but I have robotic testing data. I know what this golf club does. And that's why we have The only way to prove a wedge is to put the wedge you think you're going to buy, not one kind of like it, but the wedge you think you're going to buy, wedges, put them in your bag and play three or four rounds of golf on your golf course with the shots that you know what your wedges do on those shots. That little pitch on the first par five, that, you know, that short side pitch, you know, chip and pitch. And you you can see the ball flight. You can see how the ball checks up on the green. You can see how it reacts on chips. And the only way to evaluate wedges is to put them on your golf course with the shots you know. So because of that, we actually have a program. Our program is we'll build you your wedges, your shaft, your specs, length, lie, everything, the right lofts, and let you put them in your bag for 30, 40 days, five or six rounds, whatever it takes for you to determine they are or are not better. And if they aren't better, we want them back. I don't want you to put them in your bag if they are. I don't want you to, I don't want you to think you have to keep them and then say, you know, I, I bought Edison's. I don't like them. No, I don't want them in your bag if you don't like them. I want them back. I'll sell them to somebody else. You know, use. I'll put them in my demo program. But I know if you play these wedges three or four or five times, you're going to hit some shots. You're going, wow, I really got away with that. Your best shots are going to be the same. 
I mean, everybody, if you hit your driver right in the screws, you hit your eight arm perfect, you hit your hybrid perfect, you hit that putter, that putt perfect. The perfect shots is what makes this game enjoyable, but they're very few and far between, even if you're a tour player. What makes this game tolerable is getting away with your shots that aren't so good, right? That's what we've tried to bring to wedge play is I'm going to let you get away with things that the other companies won't let you get away with. Well, if, if your technology is that much better, if your clubs are that much better, don't, aren't you afraid that some big companies steal that technology or replicate it in some way? How do, no, how do you protect it? It's going to happen. It's happened in every golf club category out there. Do you remember when Big Bertha came out? You and I are old enough to remember that. I do. And actually. We laughed at this goofy looking golf club. That's the size of a, looked like a cantaloupe compared to what we were playing. And you laughed at it till you hit it. And as soon as you hit it, you realize, wow, there's something here. And within one season, every major golf company had an oversized metal driver copied off a of big Bertha. The ping answer. You know, there's eight times as many answer style putters being sold every year as ping makes because everybody copies the answer and has for 60 years. Okay. Cavity back irons. You know, graphite shafts, if something comes along that works, it will be copied by everybody because golf club technology is very hard to protect, particularly in a wedge, because what you see is what you get. I mean, anybody out there could could copy what we're doing. I mean, I will tell you the biggest brand out there copied my progressive weighting of score. You know, we put milled grooves in Eidolon wedges in 2003. The biggest brand in golf introduced their milled grooves in 2006. I've been copied over and over. And it's flattering, but no golf company out there is going to make, I mean, i use a perfect example. The number one selling ball in golf gets all the credit for getting out of the wound ball era and into multi-piece solid golf balls, but they weren't the first. Mark O'Meara won two majors with the Spalding Strata. Titus is still making a wound golf ball. They realized these days are over. We need to get into it in a you know, multi-piece ball technology, and they did, but they didn't pioneer it. I mean, Faultless was making a solid golf ball in the 60s, I think. So it's always been the young companies that innovate. You know, Callaway, I mean, who was tailor-made when they introduced the metal wood? Who was Ping when they introduced the answer and the, and the Ping I-Iron? You know, who was tailor-made metal wood? Who was Callaway with the oversized metal wood and then, you know, biggest Big Bertha, great Big Bertha? Who was Adams when they introduced the hybrid? Small companies have always innovated because there's no risk in innovating when you're small. You can't copy what they're doing. You got to do something different that works. And that's always been my mission. I'm not a slave to convention, even though I am a very traditional player. I still play blade irons and I always will. I'll never play anything but a muscle back blade, even though it's a little modified from when my original Reed Lockhart irons and the Hogan TKs that I designed. But you know, I like I play a 400 cc driver because I don't like these big 460 drivers. I just don't like them. I don't feel like I can work the golf ball and move it around like I want. But well, I'm a very traditional guy. But I also want my clubs to perform the way I want them to perform. And I was never happy with wedges. That's why I got into it about 30 years ago. So you're comfortable. You're okay with having one of the big boys eat your lunch, or at least part of it. So I would imagine that from a marketing strategy standpoint, your your goal might be to create a cachet around the brand the same way like a Scotty Cameron did with putters. So as someone who's serious about wedge play would want to put an Edison wedge in his, his or her bag because it's cool and because it's maybe not as a club that everybody else would buy or know, even know about. There's a certain cachet to it. Is that... Well, 
you're seeking. Cache with a golf club is does the damn thing work? To me, that's what the cachet of a golf club. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's the yeah, entry. I don't want to be a prestige brand. I don't want to be a vanity brand at all. This is a performance brand, Gordon. I mean, we're making a wedge design through the range of loss from 45 to 63 degrees. We're making a wedge design that my bet is it works better than what's in your bag. And I'm willing to build you a set of golf clubs and put them in your bag to show that to you. You can take my word for it. Iron Byron proved it to me that they're better. I want you to prove it to yourself they're better. And when the big guys realize that what we're doing is the right thing, they'll have to come copy it eventually. If, if what we're doing catches on and people realize, hey, you know, you never heard of Edison Golf, but they're making better wedges and that's why they're in my bag. And this really is not about good players. It's not about thought leaders. It's about golfers who want better performance inside wedge range. And they want to get more out of that short range performance. And we have an alternative to everything that's on the retail rack. And if your listeners would just say, you know, I'm going to open my mind. I'm going to walk into a retail store and I'm going to go look at the wedges on the retail rack. And then I'm going to go over to the used club barrel and see how much different they are. And you can look at a wedge. It's a piece of molded metal. What you see is what you get. And you'll look at our wedges in the, in the back of the golf club looks very different than anybody else's because we've put weight in places where nobody else has done this before. The top half of our golf club weighs almost double what the top half of every other wedge weighs. And that's how we deliver more spin through gear effect. We deliver more forgiveness by having more mass behind those high face shots. And we deliver more forgiveness because whether you hit the ball dead center, a little low, a little high, it's got roughly the same amount of thickness behind it. I believe that works. I, there's a lot of rocket science and drivers and golf balls and wedges is pretty much what you see is what you get. So in order to change the performance, I'm going to change the way the golf club looks. And some people look at our club and go, that doesn't look like a wedge. Well, what Taylor made metal wood didn't look like a persimmon driver either, but you bought one because it worked better. Big Bertha didn't look like your Taylor made, but you bought it because it looked better. And I mean, it worked better. So I'm flattered when companies do what I've been doing whether they intentionally said, we're going to copy that Terry Kaler guy or not, I don't know what goes on. But I know that every major company already has Edison wedges in their R&D department. They're turning them apart to watch what they do. That's just what they do. I mean, that's their business to know what the competition is doing. You really don't have access to the private club pro because the big companies own those relationships pretty much. They're not, they're not going to tell their members to check out your wedges, right? Maybe behind the scenes they will, but no, I don't think so, Gordon. We've, we've found that golf professionals, are the, the good golf professionals that really take their craft seriously, they are all about member enjoyment and member relations. I can help you play better by putting you in this golf club or this golf ball or this pair of shoes. Most of them are not just in it for the money because golf is, I mean, at the club pro level, nobody's getting rich in the golf industry, right? They're doing it because they love the game and they love taking care of their members. And, and we've had a lot of golf professionals of my acquaintance over the years that have already been reaching out to me going, hey, when are we going to be able to get your Edison wedges? And, you know, I will tell you, I will never sell wedges through a major retail store. I'm, that's not where I want to go because I think, as I said earlier, Wedges need to be tried on your golf course, hitting your shots. And I want to facilitate the golf pro to be an integral part of our marketing and our distribution of wedges, because I would much rather sell golf clubs through the golf professional. I mean, I, as I mentioned early in our interview, I owe a great deal 
to Carl Gustafson, the golf pro that brought me up as a kid. And we hung around that magical pro shop, even at this little nine hole golf course. And I remember the, the bullseye putter rack and I remember those forged blades on the wall and those persimmon woods. And I have, owe a great deal to golf professionals and they will be hearing from us with a program for them that's going to put them in the driver's seat to engage their golfers with wedges and short game instruction and we talk about growing the game and you animated in your in your interview that I'm critical of green speeds and and difficult green complexes and I am but people don't quit golf if they're getting better and they don't quit golf if it's enjoyable I'm not going to use the word fun because It's kind of a sick kind of fun that we expose ourselves to out here, but it's challenging and therein lies the enjoyment and being enjoyable and fun can be two different things, but golf is enjoyable if you're meeting the challenge at an acceptable level. And my goal is to help you do that as you get closer to the green, because most of the industry resources are about enjoying the game from the tee and then, you know, at long range. And most of the industry resources are in the long part of the game. And if you take the average 15 handicap hits, maybe five or six greens around, but he's, but he's shooting 88. And the tour player, I saw some round a while back that some tour player was just really having a terrible day and hit like three greens and shoot 70. Your 15 handicapper just went out and hit five greens and shot 85. So what does that tell you about how good they, those guys are around the greens. And I think that the, as the game changes, green complexes are more difficult. It becomes more important for you to optimize your wedge play. And I think, you know, my approach is that that requires a different approach to your wedges, the way they're engineered, the way they're built, the way they're bought, I believe completely in custom built to order wedges. And like I said, we don't have stock golf clubs. You know, we want to even build your demos to your specs. Let you go try them out. The exact wedges you're going to put in your bag, I want you to try those, not something kind of like them. This, nobody's ever done this in golf. It's kind of interesting. So is it fair to say that there's a correlation between making a golf magazine's hot list and, and how much money that company spends on advertising in that magazine? You know, I know the editors at Golf Digest, and I would say probably not. I mean, I think they do a really good job. The hot list testing is a is an arduous adventure for those testers that are out there hitting thousands of golf shots in a few days, a week, whatever. I don't think the hot list is a be-all, end-all, but it's certainly an indication of what's out there. And, you know, we'll see how we do this year in the hot list. And the big brands are almost always going to get more attention. And I, w- I will tell you this is what I know from we did a blind test some years ago. You might find this interesting. And we took wedges that were unbranded. All they had was the loft number on them. And we did a, a rain session at a club with, we had say, we want 10 golfers of kind of a spectrum of handicaps in a morning session and an afternoon session. So in the morning session, we came to these 10 golfers that we're going to show you some new wedge technology from one of the major brands. Can't tell you who it is and would like for you to give us a review of this wedge performance. We had them all hit shots and arrangement of shots and we had them score, um, you know, and, and rank these wedges. In the afternoon session, we said, this is a completely new approach to wedges from a company you've never heard of. It's going to be challenging the major brands. would like you to go out and give us this report. We did the exact same testing. The wedges from a brand that people thought was from a brand. No, it's the exact same golf clubs. These are the same batch of golf clubs. The afternoon session graded the clubs 25% lower than the morning session did. 
people trust major brands. You know, it's why you have such, I mean, you know, the, the challenger automobile brands, the challenge. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's, we're all kind of comfortable with major brands. But if you look at the history, who pioneered metal woods, who pioneered oversized metal woods, who pioneered cavity back putters and irons, who pioneered hybrids, who pioneered graphite shafts, True Tipper didn't pioneer graphite shafts. They owned the shaft business. But it took some upstart companies to go, we think we have a better way to do it. And that's always been inspirational to me is I think there's a better way to do it. So, you know, can you imagine, as I mentioned, can you imagine the product manager for wedges at the major brand who owns half the wedge category? Can you imagine him going to leadership and go, hey, stop the presses. We've been doing wedges all wrong. They know, go back to your room and protect our number one market share position. We're not doing wedges all wrong. We're the leader in the market by far. So go back to your room and protect that. Say, so do you worry about capacity to, at all as you get more successful? Do you worry about being able to create all these custom demos for that people are asking for? How many people actually work for the company now? All of them. We have a we have a small crew, and and we're we're a tiny company. We're not even a blip on the radar screen yet, Gordon. But what we're doing is the right thing. And to your question, we will grow at a measured pace. And if podcasts like this, you know, they always create a nice bunch of traffic for us and interest and sales. And sometimes that takes us from our standard three to five day production schedule into a week or ten day production schedule, and in a week we're caught back up. And we we crank up and, and keep measuring. So we have the resources to bring in more people. We build everything to meticulous standards. And golf club assembly is not that mystical, but we have a very high set of standards. And we have a production platform that allows us to bring people in and incrementally bring them to full club maker status. So, you know, we'll grow. But, I mean, if it gets to a point where, you know, we can't handle it, we're, we're growing our marketing spending so that we tell more and more people what we're doing. We're growing that incrementally, but we're patient. I think that's a virtue for small businesses. We're very patient. And uh, again, we're not out to slay any giants. I mean, if 95 out of 100 people that buy wedges bought somebody else's wedges, we would be immensely successful. So it's kind of a funny way to look at it. Let me change gears a little bit. You have earned a reputation in the industry as a contrarian thinker. Yeah, I'm sure you've been called worse things than that, but where did that attitude come from? And uh, can you talk a little bit about how it's made your life either more challenging or and or more rewarding? And I guess I'm a contrarian in that if I see something I don't think is right, I will speak up about it. I mean, for example, I'm an outspoken critic of fitting bounce. You know, the big companies talk about all these grinds and how that's so important. I just don't believe it's important. Because turf conditions constantly change, swing paths from my research and 50,000 golfer profiles, people say they don't always take the same size divot, either accidentally or on purpose. If they're a really skilled player, they know sometimes they nip the ball, sometimes they really dig at it to make it do different things. Well, and we know turf conditions aren't the same. I mean, we've been in a drought down here in South Texas, and it's been raining for three days. Well, the golf course is going to be a heck of a lot softer when we get back out there than it was a week ago. So how can I have the right balance if the turf conditions are changing? You know, we've had around the greens or t- typically around our greens is pretty firm. But because of the drought, been watering the greens a lot, we roll them. So the water runs off. So the front collars are very moist. So that's a different challenge. And the tour player, if he encounters a different challenge, he goes to his tour rep and says, I need new wedges today with three degrees more bounce on them. And he gets them for free. 
you and I don't get to do that. You know, we have to go. And so I believe that that the soul design has to be versatile. That's what I've created 30 years ago in this, what I call the Kaler soul, which is being kind of influenced and copied a little bit by other brands. That patent has long since run out. But I think that the, you have to find a soul design, which I think we've created from the reports I get for 30 years, that's as versatile as you can possibly make it. If this shot is a tight line, but the very next time you pull that 54-degree wedge, it's on a soft line, that soul's got to be good at both of those. So I'm contrarian in that way. I'm contrarian in the fact that I think it's a kind of a concession to mass producing wedges. You know, the top brands of wedges are made overseas, brought in in container loads and put on the on the retail rack by the hundreds. So you really pretty much have to put the same shaft in all of them. I think the shaft is the most overlooked part of wedges. It's very important in wedges, and it shouldn't be a generic stiff steel shaft. The big companies probably have their data that says it should be. I just don't buy into that data. So I'm contrarian in that respect. I get challenged a lot, you know, with people going, now, you know, I think you're full of BS and this kind of thing. And, you know, okay, that's fine for you to think so. I had an, and I'll just tell you this, it, and it doesn't really offend me that people have their opinions, but this, I'm going to try to say this as humbly as possible. I've been studying wedges for 30 years. That's what I do for a living. I don't sell insurance. I don't sell cars. I'm not a banker. I, every day, all day long, it seems like for 30 years, I've been studying wedges, what they do. I've, con- I've analyzed 50,000 wedge fitting profiles. I've watched results from numerous iron byron testing, and I've conducted hundreds and hundreds of interviews at demo days. If you haven't done that, it's pretty hard for you to critique what I think I know with what you think you know. I had a conversation with a guy like that, and I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a commercial insurance guy. Are you good at it? Because I'm very good at it. I said, so I suppose you're very successful and you work 40 or 50 hours a week. He said, at least. And I said, so I don't know squat about insurance. I always go to my insurance agent to get my expertise on insurance. But while you were learning the insurance business, being really good at it, I've been studying wedges, getting really good at it. So I don't think it's possible for you to know more than I know. You can have your opinions and I appreciate that. And you're probably smarter than the average golfer. But just sheer time prevents you from knowing what I know. What are 50,000 golfer profiles and you haven't talked to hundreds of people at demo days and you haven't been through numerous iron-barring data tests. So. Right. So you've played a lot of golf. You're you're a good golfer. You're a, you're a three handicap. So you played. You probably played a lot of courses around the world. Are there any two or three that you consider to be the best? Or if you had to play one last round, that that's the course you would play on? My brother and I in 1990 went to Scotland and played St. Andrew's Old Course. We played Carnoustie. We played Troon and Turnberry and a couple other small courses. But those were the most notable. And and that trip is golden in my mind. You know, that's my brother and I really bonded for the first time at 40 and 42 years old. The golf there to me was magical. There was a caddy that we had and my brother took great pride in his ability to mimic accents. And so by the fourth day, he's, you know, he thinks he's got his Scottish accent down pretty good. And so he says to this caddy, he says, you know, what do you think of my Scottish accent? That's my rendition. And the caddy says the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. He goes, I, you Americans, you do to the language what you did to the game. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you got to tell me what you meant by that. And he went into this soliloquy about the game is man against nature. It's how you deal with all the bad bounces and the bad breaks and this. This is what the essence of golf is, not just striking a golf ball. And yeah. you Americans, you manicure your greens to be perfect, your fairways to be perfect, even your bunkers to be perfect because you take chance out of golf. And you've removed one of the main character 
aspects of the game. And it's like, wow, that's pretty eloquent and very true. We do that. I mean, people bitch about a bad line in the rough. It's like, well, it's the rough. Go learn Scotland and play in the rough is nasty stuff over there. So I had opportunity to play Wingfoot, which, you know, we'll see the U.S. Open there this week. And I had opportunity to play Wingfoot many years ago. It's phenomenal, wonderful golf course. I really thoroughly enjoy my little country club at Victoria Country Club. It's one of the most challenging tests of golf I've ever played. And, you know, but if I had to play a last round, I think I'd like to go back to that little nine-hole course I grew up on. And I'd like to go back in the conditions it was in when I was 18. It's there now. I haven't played it in a long time, but it's different. Trees have been taken down and things are changed. It's got a lot of grass on it now. Back then, it was like you move the ball around a yard or two in the fairway trying to find a tufty grass. It was dirt everywhere. But I think maybe I'd love to do that. That's really nice. So we're coming up on an hour here, so I don't don't want to kill your whole day. So looking back on your career, is there anything you would have done differently? You've done a lot of things. I would have done the Ben Hogan deal differently had I had that to do over hindsight's 2020, you know, and you learn a lot of lessons from looking backward, but you know, without getting into detail, I would have done things a lot differently there. Hindsight being 2020. Yeah. I'll I'll leave it at that. I would have done things a lot differently. Although I got to tell you, Terry, you don't strike me as a, as a corporate guy. You strike me as a kind of a entrepreneur, a hardwired entrepreneur. So maybe that was part of the issue, but as a kind of a, independent thinker. Do you have any sources of personal inspiration that you've turned to or used consistently over the years, either a person or a book or a tape series? Or Yeah, I have a number of them. And I would say the two most influential inspirations in my life, Ben Hogan and my father, not in that order, my father and my mother too. I, I was so blessed, Gordon, to grow up. I always tell people, people our age would get it. I grew up in Mayberry with Ozzie and Harriet. So idyllic childhood. My mom was a queen, ran that house for us, three Taylor boys, my father, my brother and I. Meals and things were revolved around when we had our tea time, when we had our tournaments, when we were going bird hunting, when we were going fishing. Great food, great lessons. My dad, I spent a lot of time with just hanging out with him. And he was quite the philosopher, shared a lot of pearls of wisdom about treating other people, about just getting the best out of life. And and I lost him early in life. I was only 27 when he died. And so I really missed having the adult relationship with him. I, I feel like probably I would have avoided a lot of, of, of missteps in life. I don't call them mistakes, but they were missteps uh, had I had him to go, hey, dad, what do you think about this? Because you know how it's funny how you go through that period where your dad becomes really dumb. And I was, he was just coming out of that dumb stage. He was getting to be a smart guy again when I lost him. But Dad was a great inspiration because he treated everybody the same. He was a a little country banker, and he would have his biggest cattle customer with a million-dollar line of credit back in the 60s sitting out in the waiting room waiting because he's taking care of this customer who's more than $300 to buy a piece of furniture for his house. Everybody was treated the same by my dad, and I've tried to take that lesson in life. He he was a, a finisher. My dad despised quitting. He was a finisher, and he used to say quitting is an easy habit to learn and a hard habit to break. And so I've I've been a relentless finisher. I might not win, but I'm going to relentlessly finish everything. And then Ben Hogan was my childhood idol as a as a golfer, uh, as an athlete. There were so many pearls of wisdom that came out of Mr. Hogan. I've studied his life way before I ever even thought about being 
you know, doing anything with the Ben Hogan company, but I've always studied Ben Hogan's life and read his books and, you know, things that he's written and his philosophies were one of my favorite things is he was asked how he wanted to be remembered. And he always said, I want to be remembered as a gentleman, not as the best golfer in the world, but as a gentleman. So I think that, you know, there's some real inspiration of not just the way he approached golf, but the way he approached life. Yeah. Did you ever get to meet him in person? I did. I got to meet him twice. Once when I was in high school and I got to shake his hand on the range at, at Colonial. And then when I first went to work for the Hogan Company as a putter designer in the 1990-91 period, and I had I got my own great Hogan story from that meeting. It was just exactly what everybody said about him. He was polite and a perfectionist. And it was like the quintessential Mr. Hogan in that little 20-minute meeting. It was great. Yeah. Well, that's great. My last question. I am actually going to go online after we finish here and uh, order my set of uh, Edison wedges. So just last plug here, tell the listeners how they uh, learn more about Edison wedges and or order them. Well, we're right now we're selling online. We haven't set up our retail network with golf pros yet. Uh, You can find us at edisonwedges.com. There's a lot of story there. We talk about the robotic testing proof, you know, what we did with our technology. We're very transparent about what we've done and why and how. We have an online process called WedgeFit that takes you through an interrogation of sorts to help us make sure we get the right wedges in your bag, right lofts, right shaft specification. And then you can place your order right there online and have those those wedges delivered and then put them in your golf course and play four or five rounds of golf. And if for any reason you don't think they're making a difference, you send them back. We'll give you a full refund. We don't want anybody with our wedges and go, man, I wish I wouldn't have bought these. No, if you wish you wouldn't have bought them, send them back. And we'll give you money back. So I don't want you to feel like that. Is there any video required? Do I, I mean, do you have to video your swing and send it into you at all? No, we're really looking at, at what your irons are. And, and we ask you in this wedge fit whether you've been custom fitted for your irons and how long you've played them. And you know, my belief is if your irons suit you, your wedges w- should be blended to them. But if your irons don't suit you, your wedges should still be blended to them because they're going to play the same. And what they're not going to give you, I always call it a seamless transition. Whatever those irons are, you're used to them. You're used to their weight. You're used to the way the shaft performs. I want your wedges to not be something else to learn. If you hit your eight, nine and pitch pretty well, then I want to mill my wedges to blend right into those. Okay. Terry, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. I wish you the best of luck with Edison Wedges. And I will never, based on your response to the insurance guy, I will never uh, question anything about wedges uh, because... uh, (laughs) Well, you can question it and I'll probably have an answer and you can then choose to believe it or not. Um, See, my response would be, I would just punch him in the face, you know, and that would... (laughs) (laughs) It was on the phone, so you couldn't do that because I probably would have taken a little different approach. You're following the Ben Hogan gentleman route, so... But thanks again. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Gordon. It has been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 